Welcome to episode 24 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psychromer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. This week, I'm having a conversation with a collaborator and friend, Dr. Shauna Springer. Sean is one of the nation's leading experts on PTSD and transitional trauma. Her work has been featured on CNN, Vice, Business Insider, Thrive Global, U.S. News and World Report, NPR, NBC, CBS, Forbes, Washington Post, and Military Times. She's a regular contributor to Psychology Today. You find out more about Shauna by taking a look at her bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So you and I have been working together for the last several years, and I know some of these stories, but one of the things that people find interesting is how people get involved in the military and veteran work, especially if they haven't served in the military themselves. You were never in the military, but you have somewhat of a unique upbringing that gives you some appreciation to some aspects of military life. I, I wasn't, as you know, in the military, and so for a while it was a bit of a mystery to me as well. And I was on a walk with my little sister one day, and I said, why is it that you think I really just find it so comfortable to be around people who are in the military? And we pieced it together on that walk, and I'll never forget it. She said, well, Shauna, we did have kind of a really unusual upbringing. And then as she started to talk through some of the things about our upbringing, which I'm happy to share on, it occurred to me that it was a lot like some experiences of boot camp and coming into the military and being instilled with those values. And and that's the interesting thing is, and, and this isn't something like I went into the military and went through boot camp and had that sort of cultural indoctrination. This happened for you at a young age. A very young age. Like on that walk, we talked about how it's not typical for kids to be pulled out of their beds at five in the morning when they're like five years old to run around the local track in the dark for miles every few days and then compete in the local track meet with the same shirt on as all of your siblings so that you're like part of this team. And that was one of several experiences where like my parents, I think, did the whole free range parenting thing to an extreme, I would say, in retrospect, for better or worse, and started sending us to different countries by ourselves. My first trip was when I was 10 years old. They gave me a photo and said, you're going to fly down there and you're going to work with this family and serve alongside them. And it was down to Mexico City for a two-week trip that first time when I was 10. So these experiences really gave me a sense of, I think, what it feels like to be very different than everybody around you, but to go in and be able to build that trust and connect with people, even if they have a very different cultural background. And I think that's one of the interesting things, definitely about those of us who served in the military, is we have a multicultural worldview. Maybe it's something a lot of people don't 
understand about us, but I would say a full half of my time in the military was serving overseas. Of course, Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan, North Africa, but I spent six years in Germany and, and being exposed to other cultures just generally, but especially at that young, impressionable age, like you said, it gives you a different worldview. It definitely does, Dwayne. And it's the, the discomfort that you go through trying to connect with people and understand each other, even when you come from very different assumptions and backgrounds. I got comfortable with that process, but it's more than that because I really not only am comfortable with veterans and those who serve in the military, I just really, they feel like home to me. And I think it's because I was also instilled with similar value set of really working through some of my natural fears, perhaps, and practicing the muscle of, of being brave in lots of interesting and odd ways growing up to include the travel, but other experiences I had as well, where we were constantly challenged to push past our natural fears and boundaries. And so it just really instilled in me that sense of connection to something bigger than myself, to a life of service, and to being brave when I can be, to fight for the things that are sacred to me. And one of those things is that a wise nation takes care of those who protect us. And so that's sacred stuff to me, and it's core to my mission. And I am a mission-driven person, I think, as a result. And that's interesting. That's one of the things that obviously military instills in you is when we're at a certain age, we're not truly sure of what we're capable of. We haven't been tested to our limits. There's this gap between what we think we can accomplish and then what we can actually accomplish. And the military bridges that gap. And you say that you're upbringing, this free-range parenting you experience, pushed you into that gap in the same way that sort of basic training does. I think it did in many ways. And I want to be careful here not to equate it to boot camp. It's not like, you know, I was being yelled at to get out of bed and make sure that I was absolutely squared away every day. Not, it wasn't exactly the same, but I do think that people have said to me sometimes, it's clear that you've been tested in life. And I think that's what they mean. It's that, that thing that's hard to describe about knowing what it feels like to suffer and to be afraid and to move forward anyway, because there are things that you value regardless of how uncomfortable you are or how afraid you are. So I'm not afraid to work for the things that I really value. And I think that's something I hold in common with many who have served in the military. And so how you got from, say, there, that that sort of pushing the envelope upbringing to, to mental health, right? how did you become a mental health professional psychologist? Well, in a way, like I was an English major, I was going to be maybe an English professor. And then my family had a law firm. So I think I'm somewhere in between somebody who is in literature, because I understand things through literature and stories, which is a little different. And maybe there's a bit of the lawyer part of me, because a lot of what I have to say in my book, Warrior, and in the speaking that I do is not the conventional wisdom. And so I think here, my upbringing really comes into play because I have to do the uncomfortable thing and point out a lot of things that I'm observing, like that suicide in the military community is perhaps not primarily caused by the things that warriors see and do in war, that there are many things that are more closely related to despair that we don't talk about and we don't understand very well. And lots of other things that we do, how we message around suicide or that awareness alone, I know you and I deeply agree on this, awareness alone can increase risk and it can make people feel like there's no solution 
and that this is a problem that cannot be reined in. And I don't believe that. But a lot of people are feeling like they're broken. They're part of a broken tribe and something that will never be reckoned with because the messaging around it and the ways that we talk about it is not where we need to be, in my opinion. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that in this view comes from a long time of work, especially directly with service members. But you've connected, you've really connected with Marine Corps veterans specifically in your work up until now. Yeah, I have. It's been such a blessing. I had one drop by a few weekends ago with 150 ammo cans. So my kids helped unload those from the truck. And what we do is we fill them up with all kinds of resources and things that help them in their language, in the ways that they understand. And then we provide those. I'm close to the the Vietnam veterans in my community, many of whom are Marines. I don't quite know if I fully analyze that one, except that they just come into an easy brotherhood with me and some of them will forget and and call me brother, which I think is so funny, or just simply doc. And it's not a clinical relationship that I have with them. It's a partnership. And it's a partnership that's based on mutual respect and sharing the same mission about seeing how things need to shift and being willing to put in the work to do it. You know, that's interesting in thinking about in in just service members over the years, but Marine veterans over the years. So you have the younger Marines, uh, of course, with OIF, OEF, but then you have the Vietnam veteran Marines, which are closer even to the leathernecks, right, of, of Iwo Jima uh, or so on. What do you think you see different between generations of Marines, say, between Vietnam and post 9-11? That's a really good question. The only thing that comes to mind right off the bat is that I'm really concerned that people don't understand that many of those we're losing are actually in that older generation. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that older generation, there's this tendency when things start to degrade health-wise, for that generation of warriors, whether Marines, Air Force, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, to feel like I really don't want to be a burden to my family. And I think there's a dangerous mindset that can take over for people that develop conditions of aging. I think in some ways, you know, there was a real break in trust between our society in terms of our warfighters and our warriors in Vietnam. And there are some really interesting similarities to me, more than differences. I would say that today's veterans, despite all of the thanking them for their service and calling them heroes and talking about how resilient they are, I don't think they feel any better seen or understood by most of society than our Vietnam veterans did. So I see more similarities than differences and really see them all as part of the warriors among us. No, I think that idea of the older generation, and in, in not the oldest generation of veterans right now, which obviously are World War II and Korean War veterans, but that's next generation down of the Vietnam veterans. I agree. I believe, and this is just maybe anecdotal, is I believe that we are silently losing more of them. We lost my father to natural causes in 2017 to the relatively young age of 69 years old. And, and there's not a Vietnam veteran that fought in the height of the war that's younger than 65 these days. But when I go to visit him at Fort Logan National Cemetery here in Colorado, everyone around him is Vietnam. A couple of Korean War maybe, but everyone around him, every marker around him are all Vietnam era veterans. And I agree. I think we are losing that generation, both to natural causes, as you said, but also definitely 
to suicide. And I think people aren't paying attention. I know. I'm very concerned about that, that the resources that we have should be serving all warriors and their family members. I feel their family members are really an area. I've worked for many years with military couples and veteran couples because I think the family members serve right along with them and that the whole family system, and I know you agree with this, Dwayne, is really important for us to attend to and really serve both partners in the relationship. And I think that really is necessary in post-military life. I came along after my father had been out of the army for four years. I'm not an army brat. We lived in the same place for so long. I was a veteran kid, but I understood the impact of Vietnam all the way up until, again, until he passed away in, in, at the age of 69. But there's that idea of maybe the veteran in post-military life gets remarried, has a spouse who has no understanding of military culture, no understanding of what they experienced while they were in the military, and yet are experiencing the aftermath without any of the quote-unquote military benefits. Right. And so they're in that marriage trying to work out and grapple with, in a micro scale, the kind of bigger cultural gap that often exists. And it exists in places where veterans get their healing, which is a really concern to me and a focus of my work is how do we build trust across the cultural gap? And that's one of the courses I did for Psych Armor was on overcoming barriers to care and really looking deeply at that cultural and trust gap in terms of our assumptions and how we enter the relationship and what healing and growth means to two different people that come together around a healing mission. Now that course is one of several courses, a number of courses, more than just several, but a handful really that you have done for Psych Armor. And Psych Armor, like you mentioned, is one of those organizations that tries to provide resources to a wide range of people. That course, Barriers to Treatment, was based on a chapter in your book, Warrior. It was based on a chapter in my book. And it was also based on my realization that how we see ourselves as mental health professionals is not at all matching how many times we are seen by veteran and military patients. That the role of a healthcare provider in the military is a very different role. And that those providers, yes, they want the best for their patients, but they also serve a dual mission. And they are looking for fitness for duty and can this person deploy? And it's just a different proposition than coming in and getting supportive therapy so that you can grow through trauma. And so it's on us to really explain and reset that relationship and talk about what our goals are and to let those veterans and patients that we serve really be in the driver's seat and tell us what their goals are. And then we are there as guides, not to me as people that tell them what to do and drop our knowledge on them outside of the goals they have for themselves. And so that's really what the course was about. How do you realign that treatment relationship so you can build the trust and become a doc to your patients? So how we are perceived can be as much we mental health professionals, how we are perceived is as much a barrier to treatment as lack of insurance or, or lack of access. And we as mental health professionals have to understand what those perceptions might be so that we can remove those barriers. Right. And to put it you know, bluntly, because I had worked in private practice with a very different population of civilian patients for a long time, it felt different in my gut to sit down with so many of the warriors that I served 
when I was working in the VA. And I thought about why does this feel different? Why are they looking around the room and, and looking for pretty much any reason to never see me again? And the, the phrase, I didn't really want to come, but my wife told me she wanted me to come today was often the way our session started. And so what I realized is just the depth of this cultural and trust gap and all of the things that therapy is based on about really what you think matters and will make you stronger in the end versus the values that underlie the military professions. It's all about the mission and strength is handling things on your own. It's not about putting your head together necessarily with a therapist and then really thinking in different ways and feeling everything that you're feeling and getting in touch with all those feelings. That's a very different proposition. And so it's up to us to really knit that together for the people that we're serving so they can enter that relationship with dignity and that we hold that respect for them as we walk with them and try to do what we can to help them heal in a way that empowers them. So your private practice clients who were not military, they came to you expecting you to be the therapist that would help them heal and help them to overcome the same way that we would go to an orthopedist who would help us with our feet or, or, or our knees or whatever. But veterans come to you not expecting you to heal, but expecting you to be a barrier in some way, take something away from yeah. them. That's what you're saying. There was no fear. In fact, the people that saw me in private practice really loved therapy. They looked forward to it. They're willing to pay a lot of money to have time to look at themselves and really think about the challenges in their lives. And they saw me as a valued guide to help them grow. And there was no fear in the room. There was no concern that I had some power to take something from them, whether it was the firearms that were part of their identity or a position in a company or give them a diagnosis that could hurt their opportunities to have the kind of life they wanted for themselves. There was no fear, only approach. And with the veterans I served, it felt really different where they just really didn't want to be there and didn't see the value in therapy just because I felt, hey, we could do some really valuable work. But I did find that once we could talk about all of that openly and directly and flush it out and reckon with it, then we could really powerfully align. And when they felt empowered to go after their goals, they did amazing things in therapy. And it became the most rewarding patient population I've ever worked with. And I'm still on mission supporting the tribe because it's just so much fun. Yeah, we're sort of like a diesel engine. It takes us a while to get warmed up, but we can go for a really long time. No, I really appreciate that and definitely will link to the Barriers to Treatment course in the show notes. If people wanted to find out more about the work that you're doing, your book, Warrior, how can they do that? Yeah, so my website right now is Doc Shauna Springer, D-O-C-S-H-A-U-N-A-S-P-R-I-N-G-E-R. And my other website is StellaCenter.com, where I'm the chief psychologist for Stella Center. And we're doing some really amazing things to treat the injury of post-traumatic stress. I'm at 20 clinics across the country using a biological intervention. So if anyone's interested in learning about that line of work, they can find out about it at StellaCenter.com. Otherwise, my books, my speaking, all the other podcasts and things that I'm, I'm happy to share are on my website. That's great. We'll make sure that those are in the show notes. Thanks Thank for you. coming on the show today. Thanks, Dwayne. It's always fun to talk to you.
Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. For anyone who's talked to me for any length of time, they realize that if there's one thing I'm passionate about, it is mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. There's a lot of aspects to this. Strong social connections, the importance of some faith or belief system, physical health. But I also recognize the need for clinical mental health professionals to be involved when things get too rough. Much of the work that I've done over the past several years has been to change the way that we think and talk about mental health with the goal of increasing the likelihood that a service member or veteran will reach out when they need to. On the other hand, when we do have folks start reaching out, someone needs to be there to help them. We can't have people knocking on doors and getting no answer. That's somehow worse than not knocking at all. And we need to ensure that those answering the door can be effective in supporting the military-affiliated population. They need to be culturally competent. And that's the basis of what PsychArmor does. Help those who are not familiar with military culture become more familiar so that they can be as effective as possible. There are two ways to become familiar with a different culture, lived experience or extensive study and immersion. As we mentioned in our conversation, Shauna does not have the lived experience of being in the military, but you don't have to have lived experience to be able to help those who do. Cancer doctors don't become cancer doctors because they had cancer. They have years of study and repeated exposure to a wide range of situations related to cancer that make them an expert. When I hear someone say, I can only see a therapist who's been in the military, it's similar to someone saying, I can only see an orthopedist who's had a knee replacement. It's not necessary to get the healing done. It may reduce some of the anxiety about going to see a therapist, but any good therapist can help resolve that anxiety anyway. The other point that I'd like to make is Shauna's concept of the responsibility that a mental health professional has to address and reduce the stigma against help seeking. It's not enough for me to sit here and say, you should come to therapy, any more than it's not enough for someone to say, you should stop eating pizza and drinking beer six nights a week. We have to understand why someone is doing that or why they're avoiding therapy, and address the underlying reasons. When Shauna and I first talked about this, I realized she was right. As a soldier, the mental health folks were seen in a different way than we want to be seen after the military. Thinking back, my very first encounter with the mental health professional in the military was after I'd been in the Army for 10 years. I was sent to a social worker as part of my evaluation packet for recruiting duty. I had to go through psychological screenings to make sure that I was psychologically stable enough to do the job. I remember asking them, is there anything that I can say to you that would disqualify me from this? They said no, of course, but that was the extent of my interaction. Later on in my career, as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were at their peak, the military started implementing embedded behavioral health and mental health folks became more accessible, but they still had a variety of roles. Helping people overcome stress, trauma, depression, anxiety, sure, but also to evaluate their fitness for duty or continued military service. They had the ability to heal, but they also had the ability to take something away. This is another reason why it's so important for mental health professionals to understand military culture. Trust is such an important part of therapy. It's almost the critical part. The client has to trust that the therapist has their best interest at heart, that they know what they're doing, that they're going to help more than they're going to harm. That trust isn't automatically there just because I have a paper on the wall. If anything, the paper on the wall might take away trust for some service members. Some service members will come into therapy overdrawn in the trust bank account, and the mental health professional will need to deposit trust just to get the account up to zero. 
regardless of whether or not it should be that way, that's the reality of many who are reaching out for help. Speaking more about the need to build trust with service members and veterans to help them through difficult situations, check out this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, a Q&A with Doc Springer. In this resource, she discusses how the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors Postvention Model helps suicide loss survivor and Marine Corps veteran Dana O'Brien address his grief. Through telling O'Brien's story, the course Treating Grief in the Veteran Population provides practical ways to help veterans express their grief and loss. You can check out the Q&A by going to the link in the show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at psycharmor.org forward slash BTM24, as well as on the PsychArmor website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.